Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Amanda Ravenhill. She's the executive director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute, which focuses on developing and integrating regenerative strategies into the Earth's ecosystems. Previously, Amanda was the executive director of Project Drawdown, a plan to reverse global warming, and she also serves as an advisor to the Center for Carbon Removal. As someone who has dedicated her career to seeking out multifaceted solutions for a healthier planet, we'd love to check in on where she's orienting her thinking right now. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to At A Distance. It's great to have you with us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. So we just want to start out by um, talking a bit about the moment. And what do you think the pandemic is revealing about this moment in terms of our history, in terms of the species? And what do you imagine COVID-19's long-term impact on our culture and society might be? Hmm. Yeah, it feels like this pandemic has been you know, the, the root meaning of apocalypse is the great unveiling of, you know, a truth that has been present all along, but now is, is more apparent. And there's a lot that has come up. Obviously, the kind of social justice and racism and neocolonialism that we've all gotten way too used to mm. as normal. There's a lot of light that's been shed on that. And then on the other side, just our, you know, collective humanity, our, our connection with one another, that Buddhist saying of no one will be truly happy until no one is suffering, just realizing that we are only as strong as our, our weakest um, and we need to take care of everyone. Do you think that there are cognitive changes taking place that you're seeing throughout society? I mean, I know that's very broad, but do you think that there are shifts in thinking that could hold on kind of post-COVID? I think there's a new understanding of the importance of resilience and questioning our overly centralized models and how fragile those are. Yeah. And also kind of an understanding that, as Buckminster Fuller said, there's emergence through emergency, Mm. that it's these moments of incredible emergency where we have great emergence and evolution happen. And he talked about this time period as our, our great final examination, using all of the technology that maybe we built for the wrong reasons first, for more uh, rivalrous and, and you know, war-oriented reasons for uniting and taking care of everyone, moving from weaponry to livingry, he liked to say. Mm. There's this sort of bleakness, you know, of disasters, but but possibly they can catalyze positive forces, which I think what you're beginning to talk about. And um, mm-hmm. do you see this as an opportunity? And have you been thinking because of your your position now and previous positions you've had that got you there? Have you been thinking about how COVID-19 actually could be an opportunity? Mm-hmm. Yes, I have been. I think it's opportunity might offend some people. There's been a lot of suffering. We've lost half a million people now. And the mental suffering of people being alone and not being the herd animals that we evolved to be is we won't even know for years just how much suffering there has been. So I prefer to say opening rather than opportunity. But I think there is a big opening here for 
us to do different sense making, like what is uh, meaningful, what is important in our life, how can we reorient how we're spending our time, how we're relating to one another, and realizing that, you know, there are some kind of environmental implications of this pandemic. Those who have been exposed to pollution are suffering worse. A lot of the times that's marginal and historically oppressed communities. And just the fact that there's there's 9 million people a year that die of pollution, you know, I think that that narrative has not come up enough. Mm. Look at look at what we're doing to save, you know, who knows how many we've actually saved because we've changed so much, but we've changed everything and the ability of people to sacrifice for the greater good is empowering. I like the idea of like, what's the transitive properties of people being empowered to see that they can, you know, small changes and behavior changes can actually make a, a planetary level impact. Mm. Tell us a bit about the Buckminster Fuller Institute program. Like, how'd you get involved with it? What's your vision for it as director? And maybe even connected to all of that, how does it tie into this conversation we're having about this moment? Yeah, so Buckminster Fuller was a bit of a misfit, I think, like many of us. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a, a polymath, interested in many different disciplines, an expert generalist, as some of us call ourselves, mm-hmm. <laughs> or as my friend says, a jack-off of all trades. <laughs> you know, the Buckminster Fuller community is similarly a community of kind of cross-sectoral, cross-discipline folks. And our our vision is to accelerate what Buckminster Fuller called the design science revolution. Mm-hmm. So kind of similar to what I was speaking to earlier, how do we move from weaponry to livingry? How do we use the best of design and nature and science uh, principles in order to make the world work for 100% of humanity mm. in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation? And that is the... The riddle of it, you know, how do we how do we create these spontaneous cooperative mechanisms that enable self-organizing systems to heal the world and do things like earth repair and restore ecosystems and also all the trauma healing and you know everything that needs to be done across all scales. Mm. How did you personally get involved with the institute? When when was Bucky and the institute something that was on your radar and something you were thinking about? It was in 2009. I was uh, doing an MBA program at Presidio Graduate School. I fell for this guy who's now my husband. And he was really into Buckminster Fuller. And there's that um, transitive power of love of like, you love that which your love loves. (laughs) (laughs) And so he got really into climate change. I got really into Buckminster Fuller. Now he's doing a lot of really beautiful work on, on renewable energy. And I'm running the Institute. So blame love. (laughs) (laughs) But when I first read Buckminster Fuller, I just never found anything. So kind of back to the misfit idea of like, oh, I belong. I'm part of this group of people who, you know, see the potential in technology, know that it needs to be more grounded in ecological principles, but all for, you know, a humanitarian aim and knowing that it could be way better. The world could be way more fun than it is now and a lot less suffering. Well, Buckminster, of course, dedicated so much of his life to making the world work for all of humanity. That was sort of at the nexus of his thinking. And he didn't limit himself to one field, as as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, how does this thinking in your mind relate to where we are right now, how we're dealing with COVID, maybe even thinking about the social unrest that's going on right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 
ability to navigate between systems and disciplines, I think inspires a lot of creativity. And so if you're able to look at maybe an architectural problem from a, you know, painter's point of view, or even something more different than that, from a biological point of view, you're able to see the context and see the whole system in a different way. And I think so much of what we need to do is to to kind of move away from overly specializing. You know, we take so many of our brightest people and say, oh, you need to be a scientist and just know about this one very particular thing that exists in this one Petri dish. Um, when it's really, you know, we should all be celebrating this idea of, of being able to see the whole and then being able to see across. So Buckminster Fuller talked about this idea a lot, procession, mm. which is the 90 degree or side effect of any action. And so often we're looking more bluntly at like, what's the main effect of what we're trying to do? And it's really the side effect in a larger system that can become the main effect. So the way he talks about that is in honeybees going around to collect nectar to create honey, they're actually pollinating from an mm. ecosystem perspective to the point where we call them pollinators. And how much else in the world are like, we think we're doing one thing, but it's actually the 90 degree processional effect um, that we're doing. And so being cross-discipline, I think you're able to see what those, those processional effects of what you're doing are more clearly. And then if you can plan for them, then you're less likely to have those negative unintended consequences, which, you know, sometimes occur at a higher order of magnitude, you're like trying to do something good and you actually mess it up at a higher order of magnitude than if you hadn't intervened in the first place. Like just pushing harm around the system in the name of good. Well, Andrew and I are optimistic that a lot of wholer thinking is happening right now. And, and one of Bucky's big concepts was spaceship Earth. Can you unpack this for us, define it and describe it sort of in how relevant it is right now today? Yes, definitely. Buckminster Fuller said, we are all living aboard a tiny little spaceship called Earth. And the reason he talked about this was one to appreciate that we are living aboard this, this living spaceship that has all the life support systems that we need. And if we can revere those life support systems and really understand our, our local and global you know, flows, then we can be in tune with them, cooperate with them and ensure that they continue to be what he said, eternally regenerative. So that's mm. kind of the base state of the planet is this kind of health that begets more health, that begets more life, that creates conditions for more and more life and evolution and complexity. And so it's, it's that life support system. And then two, it was about all of us being one community that, you know, when you go up into space, you don't see the political lines between countries. You look at Buckminster Fuller's Dymaxion projection, his, his global map, you see that we're one island earth, one island of land on one ocean, and we're all united as one. And he said, you know, politics was basically obsolete, that if you sent all the politicians in the world out into orbit, not much would change. In fact, <laughs> things would probably just get better. So that was his perspective on nation states. Could you elaborate on the map? Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you think such a visualization could be used as a tool for understanding today's challenges? Yeah. So one, the Mercator map, which is used most often, is incredibly racist. So if you look at where the equator is, it's two thirds of the way down. The landmass in the north is substantially more of it. So it would make sense that we would want to navigate it more. 
but its representation makes it look like Greenland and Africa are similar sizes, whereas Africa is about 12 times bigger than Greenland. And if you look at the Dymaxion map, it's all equal area. So you can actually see the proper proportions of the world and, and really see how they're all represented. Mm. We all kind of have this inflated view of how big Europe is and how big North America is. And I think that then influences our internal view of importance and frankly, supremacy. And we need to be dismantling all of that faster than, than ever before. I think the whole world is in the process of, and we need to put more energy into some sort of global truth and reconciliation process seeing just how how messed up the underlying mythos and, and system has been that has led us to such exploitation. Mm. I wanted to bring up Buckminster's ideas around utopia and oblivion. You know, he often wondered, are we heading toward utopia or oblivion? What's your answer to that right now? <laughs> I think we still have an option for utopia and that pessimism is really just a luxury of a less urgent time and you know it's important to grieve we are losing a lot there are kind of pockets of oblivion we're losing mm-hmm. species and we're losing ecosystems and as hard as we try we're not going to have probably 90% of the coral left and the natural coral we can regenerate you know and plant coral but the natural coral that has existed on this world is worth grieving. And so there is some oblivion. And it's important that we take that grief and ensure that it it adds fuel to our fire for action and doesn't just lead us into like a despair that that turns into apathy. Because mm. I think that's actually one of the most dangerous things on the planet right now. People saying, like, when you ask them, like, how do you feel? How do you really, really feel? How do you really, really, really feel about our future? So many people have given up already. And if you don't have that internal will, how are we going to get? Th- we have the technology. We have so much that we need. It's really about passion and will. It's an interesting nuanced conversation that you bring up about the will to save the planet, right? Mm-hmm. And we are coming out of maybe 30 years of a green movement that got very myopic in specific areas. And mm-hmm. I was thinking a bit about this idea of the gradient descent sort of this race to the bottom. It comes up in a lot of discussion around AI, the paperclip maximizer notion that, you know, if we have a narrow task and optimize for one goal, it can be detrimental to the larger mission. Mm-hmm. And that concept in relation to climate activism, you know, there's been don't touch the oceans or don't use nuclear, this sort of narrow thinking, which Bucky definitely didn't have. He sort of looked at everything holistically had this extraordinary 50 foot view. So what do you think at this moment in the sort of climate emergency, we need to adopt or can learn from Bucky in terms of how he looked at things? Yeah, I think looking at the whole planet and really looking to nature for one design inspiration, but also cooperation is key. So say the oceans, we've been looking at them kind of as like the damsel in distress of the story when really they can be the superhero that flies in, you know, carbon cycle, super complex carbon wants to move around. I like to say it's the element that holds hands and collaborates. It just like attaches to everything. And the carbon that goes into the deep ocean doesn't really move. And so the ocean is actually this incredible carbon sink. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think Buckminster Fuller would look 
kind of planetarily at stocks and flows and look, you know, at trend analysis and try to anticipate where can we put this carbon back to life in a way where it won't continue to circulate and we can, you know, regulate while also cooperating with nature to create more opportunity for nature to thrive. So say in the oceans building on coastal areas and creating blue carbon, which is like mangroves and kelp and, you know, seagrasses that can hold in some cases like 43 times more than a tropical forest of carbon per area of land. That's a way to just kind of let nature do its thing. And we can learn a lot in the process and create habitat for marine life. And there's just all of these cascading benefits, these like positive cycles of benefits that create more and more virtuous cycles of, of healing and wealth, true wealth. There are additive approaches like the ones you're talking about. And then there are these sort of other ones that that require choice under scarcity. Nobody likes to do that. Nobody likes to Mm-hmm. to look at alternatives to fossil fuels in other ways that might affect the oceans that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Has the Institute at all been involved in kind of radical thinking in terms of the climate crisis and where we're going to get energy extraction? Are you guys focused on sort of these radical ideas that seem to get shot down quite quickly? But one of the things about Bucky is he always presented these radical ideas. And that's part of where it starts, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think... Unfortunately, a lot of earth repair is considered radical because it's working with nature and not the kind of overall industrialized like ability to handle all variables way of looking at things. And, you know, there is kind of a tendency towards looking at mechanistic approaches of taking carbon out of the atmosphere and creating materials, which is part of the tapestry, the diverse tapestry of solutions for sure. And also we have a trillion tons of CO2 in the atmosphere we need to take down. Like, I don't think the world really needs a trillion tons more of stuff. Um, But a trillion tons more life, you know, bringing the whales back to full population, we're only at 3% whale population. So I think earth repair in terms of like ecosystem restoration and regeneration is actually pretty radical. It's underfunded and not paid attention to. And yeah, it has the ability to, to create life and create healing and, and food and fuel and fiber and medicine uh, all along the way. It seems that so much of the climate conversation is a battle of narrative, basically, how things are positioned. Bucky was brilliant at telling a story about what if, kind of an, an empathic approach, actually, of how this affects you right now as an individual. Mm-hmm. How much of that kind of work do you guys think about at the Institute? And do you want to push forward in terms of story as the tool yeah we have a program called regenerosity that is all about learning from and supporting regenerative projects around the world and a lot of that is kind of story oriented how can we kind of rewrite the script of of what we're doing and bring unlikely allies together which i think is something buckminster fuller did so well so how can we he said that we would build all the right tools for the wrong reasons first. How can we kind of use those same, you know, satellites? And the space age was like driven by the Cold War, but now we're using those same satellites to understand tree canopy cover and and coral health. Mm. You know, how can we use those same satellites to do ecosystem service uh, marketplaces so that the 500 million farmers in the world can actually get monetary fees for taking care of the earth for putting carbon back in the ground Mm. if we increase soil carbon just by four percent around the world we can take care of 
all of emissions and lower temperatures. And it can happen in a matter of years. It's completely out of the spectrum of a lot of, of the conversation, which is more industrialized. I wanted to bring up Black Mountain College mm -hmm. in the context kind of of the future of education and where you think that's going. You know, as you mentioned, Bucky was a generalist, someone who combined engineering and invention and math and architecture, cartography, all these different things. What changes do you think we need to see in education to sort of incentivize the future Bucky's of the world? Mm -hmm. He wrote this book in 1963 called Education Automation and kind of saw what we're going through right now where he said that automation will lead to a point where humans are left to be doing what we are uniquely capable of doing, which is learning in a way that machines never could. And so education, he said, would become our largest global industry and that we would have eventually two-way televisions before the internet, of course, in 63, <laughs> where we could talk back to the television and ask it and, and you know, record videos ourselves and be able to have this kind of global network of top-notch quality documentaries and stories from around the world so that we can all educate one another. And I think, you know, Khan Academy and, and so many of the MOOCs, you know, massive open online courses have shown this. And then now that so many schools are shut down, we have this ability and it's already happening of all these alternative models uh, arising. I think one thing I would like to see is just a deeper appreciation of traditional ecological knowledge, which is something he touched on a little bit, but I think is becoming more and more apparent that there is a deep, deep knowing and understanding in a lot of indigenous communities of how to work with the earth and work with one another in a way that can sustain and regenerate us for a long time. You know, look at the Amazon. It was mostly planted by people over the course of, you know, 30 millennia or so. And the soil there in some places still grows three inches a year because it's so alive. Mm. And I think that if education can give us that awareness and that knowledge and just the identity shift that we're not just a cancer on this earth, though we are very focused on short-term growth, <laughs> which is what cancer does, you know, we also have the ability to be these apex healers rather than just apex predators within the ecosystem. And so I think the, the education system, like teaching us the, the history and the stories of that being the case and kind of helping humanity re-identify as a healer and re-identify as a, as a common community. Mm. Mobility and scalability is another area that Bucky really thrived in, I guess you could say. What do you think COVID's revealing about the certain importance of these two things of mobility and scalability? On mobility, uh, I would recommend people look up this graph that Buckminster Fuller made of accelerating acceleration, where you can see how fast we move around the earth is in direct proportion to how big we think the earth is. So it's been getting smaller and smaller in our ability mm -hmm. to travel faster and faster to one another or to different places. And I think now that we've experienced the whole world using telepresence, it's actually smaller than ever where you can connect. And there's some fun creative projects like portals where you can connect to different places in the world. I really wonder what Bucky would make of Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he would probably talk for a really long time as he did. He was known to just kind of channel and go into a different place. I don't know if you would ever use the word channel. That's a more modern word, but <laughs> he was known to talk for six hours on time and sometimes not leave to go to the bathroom. 
(laughs) (laughs) He had this timeline. Did you ever see the timeline? It was up at the Whitney when they did his show where he had tracked his own achievements in relation to major points in the world, (laughs) which was this sort of extraordinary perspective on himself. So he had this kind of awareness that seems to be important if you're going to get your voice that loud, Mm -hmm. which is another part of education, I think, you know, connected to what you were saying is how do you empower individuals to really think that they can make change as a single person? Yeah, back to his his trim tab metaphor, uh, which is the inspiration for our, our online course. We have an online course called Trim Tab Space Camp. It's training people to be astronauts on Spaceship Earth and be trim tabs and it's on his epitaph, it's on his gravestone. It says, call me Trim Tab. This idea that the smallest point in a system, you know, or the smallest effort in a system can sometimes have the largest impact. And, you know, on a boat, there's like a small rudder on the rudder or on a plane, it's on the on the wings where you adjust that one piece and the whole system changes. Whereas if you went to the, top, the front of the airplane or the front of the steamship and said, no, move, you know, and tried to push against it, you would get nowhere. And so I think metaphors like that and just showing that it is up to all of us. Like if you stick out your foot in the right direction, the whole world can change. And now that we know more about complexity too, you know, the butterfly effect of one butterfly flapping its wings and causing a hurricane, we know that the power of the individual is is massive. And especially in this highly connected world. I mean, just in the times of COVID, just in the last few months, how much our conversation globally has changed because so many of us are connected to one another. It seems like the speed of the global conversation is quickening and our ability to evolve. You're an avid gardener and have done a lot of work around regenerative land use. So I wanted to just take one moment in this in this conversation to talk about regenerative land use, what regenerative actually means, mm-hmm. how we should be thinking about ecology, farming, our relationship to nature as we move forward and how an individual can play a part in the sort of environmental destruction taking place. Mm -hmm. So Buckminster Fuller talked about the technology of nature being actually the most advanced in the world and that because it isn't man-made, we consider it amateur, but it's actually the most complex. And I find just being in the garden every day learning and experiencing plants and eating straight from it. I think I'm, my body is just being built uh, with better building blocks and molecules because it's fresh and doesn't have poisons on it. And also it's just like in relationship. You know, the idea of regenerative is kind of taking fire right now. It's kind of the next evolution of sustainability. There's a lot of different ways to describe it. One, it's about kind of looking to place and seeing what the unique genius of a place is, whether that's a group of people or an individual, and increasing the capacity or the potential of that unique genius. You know, so much of the world in the last couple hundred years has been about like quarterly profits and extraction and how do we kind of gain, whereas regenerative is about how can we have a win-for-all dynamic where... I can gain by creating, you know, healthy conditions for something else. In regenerative agriculture, a lot of times it's kind of managing for ecosystem services. So how can we put more carbon into the ground? How can we restore water systems? How can we increase habitat for wildlife? How can we 
give room for more pollinators to come through. And when you stack all of those things together, they create these virtuous cycles where they all help one another continue to increase. And we have the ability to do it. Tom Chi, who's our board chair at Buckminster Fuller Institute, often talks about how ants, you know, actually eat like it's 10 times their body weight every day. You know, they're taking all of this extraction from their local ecosystem, but they're also creating so many services that it, it more than offsets and they're a net positive at the end of the day. And, you know, nature has been serving humans and then humans have really been serving technology because we've like kind of have been writing the code wrong. <laughs> we need to kind of balance that whole that whole equation and at least have technology serving nature, if not everything serving nature and humans and not letting technology be our, our overlords in the process. Unless we reframe technology as, as nature's technology and then it's about tuning into that. And yeah, I think it's up to all of us to have our tiny little earth repair projects wherever we are. It's, it's so empowering to know that I'm at the theoretical level and educational level and, and resourcing these different projects day to day, you know, many hours with my hands on the laptop. And also I'm, I'm creating life around me and that life becomes me and, and what I eat. I think it's, it's so important that we all tune in to that and, and our food choices and just acknowledging that if it's not organic, it has poisons in it. And those poisons have been proven. Mexico just this week decided not to use Roundup or glyphosate anymore in the whole country. They're phasing it out by 2024. We all need to get there. We have all these mutagens and, and toxins in our system. We have no idea really what they're doing long-term. We have some idea that they're causing cancer in all of us. And so, yeah, recommend that everyone work their gardens and also consider yourself allergic to anything that's not organic. <laughs> so in sort of wrapping up, we're, we're thinking a lot about how we move forward now as we're exiting sort of the first couple phases of this, of this quarantine, um, wherever you are basically in America. But as we move through this, what is your kind of greatest hope as we emerge from this? Hmm. The greatest hope would be one that we can use it as an opportunity to heal ourselves. There's so much to be done at the personal and interpersonal level in order for us to have a healthy and maximum fun future and just aware of one another's needs and, and slowing down conversations and nonviolent communication, all these tools that we have. It seems like a lot of people are, are finding conflict right now in this pandemic with one another, with themselves and just kind of facing themselves. And I, I would hope that this could be a chance for all of us to do some deep healing for ourselves, the intergenerational inherited epigenetic healing too, um, so that we can get to a point where we can be emotionally intelligent enough to pass through this awkward era that we're going to be in, where we need to shift a lot really rapidly. And the extreme weather is only going to continue, even in all of the best case scenarios, the extreme weather continues for another decade at least, if not eight decades. And that causes all sorts of shocks to the system. You know, and this is really just training wheels in a big way for a lot of that's coming. And so how can we use it to find our balance like good training wheels do so that we can move quickly through the next shocks and not hurt each other along the way? Beautiful. Thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.